0: Welcome to Singled Out, your 9th best gaming podcast.
1: Please stand by... to episode 125. In this episode Andrew and Steve talk to Ben and Chris about the new hit Kickstarter Micro Dojo, and about game design.
2: Hello, welcome to episode one hundred and twenty-three. Yes, I remember this time. I've singled out. I'm Andrew. This is Steve. Oh, and today we have Ben. Hello. And Chris. Hello. Uh, this episode isn't about Guild Wars. Just get that out now. Um,
0: <laughs> or Infinity. Or Infinity. It's about. Other-
2: um, it's about wonderful board games which we play many of them. At least I certainly do. Are you a kind of board gamer, Steve. I, I like a board game. I'm not
0: as uh, I think I'm not as keen on them as you. But that partly is my spouse is is a, not into board games so much. But I do. I always enjoy them on. when I play them. And I think uh, I think this podcast was sort of based. This is my podcast of envy because I think what we're going to do is speak to people who have used the lockdown period to create whole new wonderful things. Uh, and and where, whereas you and I have just created a number of episodes of this podcast,
2: I created also a stone and half an actual weight. Strong, so strong. you know
0: that, that, that's that. So, I created not... a moderate increase in cholesterol. I learned when I went for like a health checkup.
2: So you know we've, we've, achieved, we've achieved something.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, shock horror Glaswegian increases
2: risk of heart
0: attack. Who'd thought that?
2: Okay, so on, on on the I guess thinking about actually achieving things, um, I guess Ben and Chris, you've done something useful with your time. Yeah, do, do do you guys want to just like introduce yourselves and tell us like about
0: your I guess like your background in board games and your background in tabletop games and sort of uh, and how how you got to the point of creating something wonderful? And um, let's let's ask um, Ben to go first. I think some of the listeners might have met you at previous Guild Ball functions.
1: Yeah,
3: and I couldn't get on the podcast when I played Guild Ball, so I uh, found another route in. This is this was my main motivation for creating a board game <laughs> just to to talk to you guys again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that's that's the end of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take my money now, thanks. <laughs> Which we could. No, so, um, yeah, so it was over lockdown, uh, of course, uh, last year. I think I'd exhausted all the the usual activities. I'd done some cooking. I'd tried working out on the balcony. I tried drinking in the morning, and um, <laughs> hobby. I was like, okay, I need to do something. Uh, I need to do something creative, uh, and I actually started out thinking, oh, I'll make a video game. Like a, I think I was inspired by Stardew Valley. Actually, with this, you know, one guy I think who did the whole thing. So I'm like, I can make a video game. And I spent maybe an hour looking at Unity and tutorials and thought, oh, this is going to be way too hard.
2: Um, <laughs> I mean, I imagine making a computer game from scratch will take a long time, right? I imagine it take a very yeah. long time.
1: We well, previously interviewed John
2: Cole about that attempt to make a video game, that he's still working on.
3: Yeah, um, <laughs> it, was, yeah it looked like it would be a lot of work and, and very complicated. And I thought, OK, um, and my brother said, oh, why don't you make it as a board game? Um, so I thought oh, I'd never really thought of making a board game before. Um, so I ended up listening to podcasts, um, just kind of got hooked on listening to uh, Board Game Design Lab, and just reading about it. Um, worked on uh, a game idea for a couple of months. Uh, it didn't really go anywhere. I think the more I developed it, the more I thought actually this, this isn't quite going in the direction I want it to. But by then, instead of thinking oh, I'll create a game, I thought oh actually I'd quite like to make a few games and try different things and. Um, maybe even do this like long term more seriously as well. So um, that's kind of where it went from.
0: I So were you were you a big gamer before Ben? Like, so obviously you, we met we met at the WTC, didn't we? For Guild Ball, but did, did you yeah. play other games before? Are you like a you know? Is this a sort of yeah? And what what sort of games did you play? And what were you interested in? Like, and were there any things particular about what you played that you really wanted to make sure you brought into what you were doing?
3: Yeah, uh, lots of board games. I think I started off, I suppose, really sort of playing Magic and and playing that more. And then it was at at board game stores and people would play other board games there and, uh, you know, occasionally would would dabble in a few. Um, And then when I moved out to Dubai about six and a half years ago, um, just sort of really got hooked in with the board gaming community here. My collection (laughs) grew and grew as we played more and more games and I got more into it. Um, So I, I always had a bit of a mix of... There was always that one competitive game. I played Netrunner for a while, and then um, Guild Ball for, for quite some time. And so then in between killing, that... You're
0: killing games. games off, Ben. You're just yeah. playing games. <laughs> yeah, <so they're laughs> yeah. <just laughs> yeah Netrunner's like... still
3: alive as
2: well. <laughs> Netrunner's doing pretty well, I think, actually. Yeah, Netrunner's yeah, yeah, had a revival. Yeah, yeah. Looked, um, I played it once, twice. It looks it looked really good. But playing it, I realised, wow, I would have to play it a lot to get good at it, because it's actually quite a deep game, isn't it?
3: Yeah, no, it, it, it's a really fantastic game. Yeah. Um and uh, yeah, I didn't enjoy it, but I find it's actually the same same chart as Guild Ball. Sort of going to all those national championships. Same with um, Netrunner. I went to the the world's at FFG in um, Minnesota. I had a great wow. time, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of done with this now. Um, but yeah, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really made the link between killing off games. No, actually, re- letting them be reborn because yeah. Netrunner's got the project, and <laughs> Guild, <Ball's laughs> and Guild a project. Got the revival project. Yeah. 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 So a mixture of board games, and then I'd usually have like a competitive game that I would uh, would really get into. Do you prefer the sort of more sort of Euro
2: sort of game or do you prefer the sort of more sort of um, kill dudes on a map sort of game?
3: Definitely Euro games is my thing, like optimization, sequencing. Making a machine, basically. Yeah, Yeah. um, I'm a mathematician um, working in (laughs) IT security as well, so the kind of the number crunching and stuff really appeals to me. Um, Yeah, anything that's quite... I like the more sort of thinky sort of cerebral games than um, the, the ones with too much randomness, yeah.
0: Chris, what what about you? Like, what What's your background with games? Obviously, I, I know you're not a mathematician, because <laughs> you're, you're tra- like, so profession-wise, very different, aren't you? So it's quite interesting that both of you are doing this, but from such different backgrounds.
4: Yeah, well, yes, I'm a video producer, but um, I do also have a degree in chemical physics, so um, ah, I, I oh, that's snuck in snuck the science in round the back door oh hang
0: on so can you make
4: Andrew look like a chump for not knowing about chemistry which he teaches for a
2: living I've I, I, I did one module in chemical engineering and that was enough for me I was done <laughs> <The> <laughs> one module.
4: I think because it's, you'd mastered it's it rusty for no, me it, it was it was yeah. a course
2: that was so hard there's a lower the pass that lower the pass grades to about 30 <laughs> percent
4: <laughs> yeah I did a few like that there was one called um uh, something of mathematical physics, FOMP or something. POMP, I think, was the acronym. Principles of Mathematical Physics. And I think they had to drop the pass mark to 32%. Yeah,
2: because no one, no one got beyond a certain grade. It was, yeah, just, yeah beyond me. Anyone, anyone who could do chemical engineering or chemical physics is, like, fair play.
4: Cause it's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of influences how I how I come up with the skeleton behind a game, I'll have a spreadsheet and I'll have all my, my balancing data. I tend to find though, when a game is really balanced like that, it then isn't actually fun <laughs> or you get lots of, <laughs> you get lots of cases where you can end up with stalemates. So I, I sort of do my spreadsheet and then I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Now I'm going to start messing with it and, you know, change well, the numbers. Find, and,
2: well, if it's balanced too well, there's like one way to win, basically an optimum way to win. Yeah. And yeah, once it works it out, that's it as well.
4: Yeah. So I found that a lot with, um, the first game that I designed for a competition, um, that it was, uh, you know, pristine on the spreadsheet. And then that doesn't actually translate to having a great time. Um, But yeah, actually, much like um, Ben as well, through the early part of lockdown, I uh, was, I went through the, the seven stages of lockdown with, with trying different (laughs) foods. I did uh, mango chutney, which was actually quite nice, but cleaning, cleaning the jars is just such a pain and like you have to put them in the oven and clean them and stuff. So I moved back to, um, tabletop game designing soon after that, (laughs) less, less cleaning jars. Um, and the main game that I designed in 2020, I I entered into a, a competition, uh, and the, the, the grand prize was supposed to be that, um, you would turn up at this, um, uh, playtesting event um in america and you'd get given a big stack of board games but that got cancelled and then the competition got moved and and but um but anyway that was quite fun to do and very um very kind of easy to keep motivated i think when you're just in all the time when you've got not much to do and you're like oh i just do some work on my game in a way that i found quite difficult when i was commuting or you know at work or seeing friends um you sort of lose the train of thought if you try to design a game and then you have to put it down for a week and then you pick it up again and you think, oh, I've just had a a great idea. Oh, no, I had that idea last week and I think there was something wrong with it and it's difficult to get momentum going. But it's been great over the last year. Lots of uninterrupted thinking time. Was that the prior prior TL
2: contest? yes you're, that's right yeah looking at this link here that steve sent me i'm actually doing some research here for podcast because no, you're not <laughs>
0: andrew you're looking at
2: stuff as we record it that's not the same as doing research.
0: i read it 1st I was come up with the name of the contest <laughs> with, the, with the notes but not actually having prepared <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing it looks really
2: good
4: <laughs>
0: the game does uh, what, what's the game called chris the, the competition game
4: that's called the island of treacherous treasure and um, what you do is you have a little hand of adventurers and you can you can hire more with gold tokens. And uh, then the main board is actually tiles that flip as you explore. So there's ones around the coast of the island and you flip them and there's maybe some monsters and maybe some um, clues about the the treasure. And then you work your way into the interior of the island where there's more monsters and you can actually start gathering the treasure. But there's treacherous treasure, as you might have expected from the name. And if you end up holding one of the treasure cards, that's also one of the treacherous treasure cards. Then you lose. And um, it's almost like a sort of Cluedo style. You can look at some of the cards and try to work out what it is that you don't want. Um, but if you spend too long doing that, the other players will grab all the treasure cards. So there's like this. That's kind of the main the main tension of it is trying to build a part of adventurers and quickly get the treasure, but not too hastily right and and so did
0: you find and on both both Ben and Chris, I guess like what did you, what did you guys find was the biggest difference between when you were playing games and when you designed them or was there was that something you had to shift in your mindset um or was it a pretty natural progression like anything in particular?
4: do you want to take this first Ben because I've been chatting away for a while
3: oh, now I'm on the spot now I need to think of something <laughs> <laughs> um I definitely found like after getting more into game design that uh probably it's less fun to play games with me because i think i'm much more critical of games now um i sort of see what they've done well and and what they've done not so well and um yeah maybe it's much easier to sort of notice flaws in other games but also it's quite interesting to sort of play games and think oh that's an interesting mechanic like how could i either like recreate that or twist that um i think it's some of the really good games are not actually ones that do something completely unique or lots of unique things but just kind of take an idea and kind of twist it and make it a little bit different or a little bit better like i've seen lately a lot of like deck builders plus something where maybe it's on my mind because we played ruins of arnak tonight but it's like a deck builder plus kind of a euro game or there's um dune imperium which is well same actually um uh, or there's Clank, where it's a deck builder plus movement. So you're kind of combining these two things. So I think I'm much more aware of of that kind of stuff when I play other games now. And um, yeah, I'm definitely more switched on in design mode when playing other games rather than just like, oh, let's hang out and play and then pack it up and go home again. Are you there with like a little notepad, you know, like a sort
0: of a you know, coach at the side of a
3: football pitch or something, taking frantically <laughs> taking notes about a good mechanic if you come across it? Yeah, maybe maybe I should just tell people, you know, if I'm uh, mid-game getting distracted, and they're like, oh, who are you texting? I'm like, oh, no, it's research. I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have a little, um, not really a notepad, but I keep it sort of online. Um, I use Google Keep or, like, Google Drive for, like, uh, documents and things. I've got, yes, tons of notes and tons of unfinished ideas, and I'm sure you're
4: the same, Chris,
3: <laughs> with uh, Millions yes. of ideas, and
4: I've, yeah. I've got so many Google Docs that are like a few sentences, and then one or two that are well, the the one for the game I'm working on at the moment, because I just stick everything in there, including reference pictures, is like 98 pages now. I'm about oh, to God. hit the hundred page mark, hooray! Hey. And it takes absolutely ages to load. <laughs> so,
0: so you're both in danger of becoming, you know, sort of Alan Partridge, where he goes around with his little dictaphone, is taking notes <laughs> for
3: his show, you know, right, you know, monkey tennis or sort of a. <laughs> <NCCM>. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> What's it?
3: Now you've said that every time I open my Google Drive, now I'm going to see all these like random names of games and ideas I've had, and I'm I'm just going to hear them in Alan Partridge's voice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if we can give you one thing as designers, I'm sure it, it's that. So, so was there like I guess like for any of the games you were designing, like was there because you were saying Ben, about mechanics from other games, like was mm. was there anything that you'd seen in another game that you were like I have to have that in some form and something I do, or, or are you more just sort of putting together pieces and seeing how they fit?
3: Um, So the game I've got that's launched at the moment, Micro Dojo, is not actually a great example because that is a pretty unique mechanic, and it's one that I came up with um, because it's a micro game. Basically, the thing about the micro game is you can... Like, the game can be the mechanic, whereas if you think about a lot of games, they've got lots of kind of mechanics that all tie together in different ways, whereas for this, it's basically a... The core mechanic is the sort of unique... It's kind of a worker placement game with sort of unique tactical movement. Um, I used, like, Onitama as a bit of a... um, Uh, inspiration for that but then the framework around it is what anyone who's ever played a Euro game will recognize it's like okay you I've heard it called the acquire build score kind of thing you you get some resources you spend the most on things that give you some abilities and then those drive you towards getting points so it's that kind of you have that kind of general framework around it and you, you start to see similarities in a lot of games where you're like okay I can see where they've got this sort of general progression or this same general framework it's just how you get there is is slightly different. Okay. And so 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 MicroDojo obviously
0: you, you've launched a Kickstarter for. It, it it's going yeah. all right. You're doing okay.
3: Yeah. I'm sure you don't want
0: anyone else buying but I'm sure you don't want anyone else buying into it now. It's going so well that's it, it's closed and
3: like No, no, that's true, i 'cause I've I've got to do all the fulfillment and stuff fly to the UK and then stuff the envelopes and put the labels on. So um yeah, please please don't buy it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> should we, um, should no, we no, talk no, about can't. the game <laughs> to
3: make sure
2: that no one buys it and um <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, and um, talk about it and
2: everything else, and say what it is, and how, you know how it's um, and how it's designed, and, and how it plays, and all that.
3: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Do you want to get into it now? Yeah, That's let's do it. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I mentioned I started off with this uh, this first idea. It was actually called uh, maybe it'll come to life one day. It was called Twin Stick Pirates, and it was like a if you think about starting at the video game, it was a twin stick shooter. Oh yeah, uh, video game. But then tried to do it in a board game um and then i had a chat with a friend uh, who'd been in game design for quite some time i said look you know i'd, I'd quite like your advice because i'm thinking of doing this more seriously and he said look one of the things you would be really good to do is start off really small because you can spend a lot of time you can you know a lot of time a lot of money designing this game um and then launch and it might go nowhere or you know you might spend years on it and find it's no good on all of this so starting with a small game is a good way to kind of learn everything um and i found actually because it's a small game and it's a super tight budget, it means you have to learn everything yourself. You know, you can't rely on sort of, oh, I'll spend money on an advertising partner and a fulfillment partner and all of this. So it's it's been a great way to learn the entire process. Um, so having that idea to start a micro game, um, I took a board game called Province as a bit of an inspiration. So this was one that a friend gave to me back in like 2016 as a, as a gift, it was $5 on Kickstarter, micro game, um, kind of worker placement Euro game, takes about 15 minutes to play. Uh, But it was a single punch board that fit into an envelope. And he basically gave it to me, we were on our way to a wedding together, Uh, not to get married to each other, we're going to another (laughs) wedding. (laughs) And uh, he was like, oh, here, I got this. It was five bucks on Kickstarter. We played it on the train and then I put it in my jacket pocket and we had drinks and do all the things you do at a wedding and I totally forgot it was there. And I just thought, what a great concept. So I started out with the single punch board as being like my goal to get a game into a punch board um, and checked the envelope sizing. Um, So a C5 envelope is the largest envelope that you can ship from Royal Mail and it still counts as a letter. So I was like, okay, we're gonna have really cheap to produce, super <clears> cheap to ship. because Then you can ship it internationally. It's like two pounds to ship anywhere in the world, basically. Um, simple to produce, so there's no complicated stretch goals. There's no um, you know add-ons that are gonna delay the project by a year or um, you know have to send that email that every Kickstarter creator says, which is sorry, it's been delayed or sorry, shipping's gone up and we've run out of money. Yeah. Um, Your
0: Dark Souls card game is coming.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I mean that sort yeah. of email
2: is so common in Kickstarters. You perhaps expect them to get late, to be late, late now. It's so common, isn't it? Kickstarters always. Yeah, great.
3: and I was looking today actually at my the other projects I've backed, and just because I was like, oh, I wonder if any of these were arriving soon, and they're all like May last year and things, and uh, and it's just it's just normal for them to be late. So I was like, okay, you know, what? I'd like to do it differently. Let's do it simple, super cheap to get, sort of anywhere in the world. It's a good experience for me if it goes really wrong, like if a shipment gets lost or I have to reprint it or there's a mistake or something, it's not going to cripple me financially to do that. Um, And yeah, just do things a little bit differently. And what it's allowed me to do as well is by making it a super cheap impulse purchase, it's like five pounds for the game. I tried to pack as much game as possible into that little, uh, little punch board. Um, It means it's much easier to reach more people. And so instead of trying to launch a hundred dollar, game with all the minis and maybe 100 people buy it i'd much rather have you know a thousand people get this game realize that okay it's a good game delivered on time good value you know the kickstarter campaign was run well and then the next time i produce a game and the next one and the next one these are fans that will say oh you know what the last campaign was good yeah i'll pick up the next one uh and so that's that's the whole plan with the game so what is it
0: yeah. What's the so? Game? What is it? Yeah, I should have told you what it is.
3: <laughs> no,
0: I mean this is like this is like a niche interest to in me as a someone who works in strategy. I'm like, that's really interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. I think that, that might be like a Harvard Business <laughs> Review podcast <laughs> rather than a like a yeah. No, no probably, and I don't know. That'll be the page. I think it's bit, really like, interesting. I, I guess I guess what's it. interesting is when like it's obviously like you've used like the sort of. The fiscal and delivery stuff to set yourself parameters about your game. Like you already have parameters that your game can't be more than this size and can't be more than that thing. So it's a really interesting sort of creative tension to give yourself in the design space so, so so what did you do with that creative tension and what is the game
3: yeah because i started with the end in mind which then informed what i was going to do for the rest of it um hang on, really- hang on. That, that sounds like strategy ben can you come and talk yeah, to I my know. work about this <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i don't know chris you might find this but like the hardest thing for me, I found, is when someone's like, so "Tell me about your game." I'm like, "Yeah, it's um, I, I think it's quite good." Like, <laughs>
4: so, so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm good at talking about the vibe of the game, but then when it comes yeah. to the rules, I'm like, "Oh, it's like this really cool thing where you, you know, you'll you'll love it, you'll love it. It's yeah. got a nice feel."
0: <laughs> is that familiar yeah. for you, Chris? Because where, where are you with what the one the game you're working on now as well? And so, we, yeah, we just, let's bounce between the two. So, like, okay,
4: well. yeah, so yeah, so my game at the moment is is a mashup of ancient greek myth and that black figure pottery style meets um retrofuturism so like spacesuits and ufos and stuff and you know so it's like a picture of a ufo in black figure kind of thing with little um well argonauts of course what else are you going to call them like uh little men in in space helmets so that that was kind of the the starting idea which is very much a like Theme and look idea rather than a game idea, but the, then the ideas for the mechanics followed from that. So this is this is the opposite of um, Ben's game and like the thing that you know he was warned against doing, which is a game with everything in it. Because I think <laughs> it would be cool. So it's city building as the main mechanic, and like in a euro game, you generate resources, which let you build better buildings, which generate better resources or have better abilities, which eventually score you points complicated by the fact that monsters will come and invade your cities like cyclopses and minotaurs and so on, also in space helmets, of course. And um, you can hire adventurers using resources to do that. So there's a bit of a split between whether to to build your city or whether to go hard on adventurers and gadgets for them, you know, so they're, they're mythical weapons to, uh, to hunt monsters with. Um, and then there's also an objective track, which you um you can send off your adventurers to to win these cards for you as long as you fulfill the conditions. So it might be having the most of a type of building or having the most of a type of monster killed or something like that. Um and um so this game has eight decks and two hundred and seventy cards. Uh and whenever I think Oh, maybe this. Maybe I'm sort of getting to the end of, of the size of this game. I think of another idea and think, I'm going to add another deck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's still at that phase, which is very much an early phase. It's been playtested a few times. It's kind of fun. It lasts maybe a bit long. Maybe there's a few too many mechanics. And it's the sort of coming to the stage now where I'm starting to prune, but it's never going to be a game that fits in an envelope. It's always going to be a, quite a big... I think the aim is to make it sort of medium weight rather than heavy weight, because... Uh, that tends to be something I prefer to play. I like games with quite a bit of luck. There's some strategy, but it's quite forgiving on someone who's maybe not played it before compared to people who have, although they're more likely to win. Um, everyone kind of has fun and it's kind of different every time. So that's kind of what I'm going for for this one. And um, although it's it's not out yet and unlikely to be anytime soon, you can you can see what I'm up to on Instagram. I'm Christopher Brooks UK on Instagram and I post about it quite often. Mainly nice pictures
0: because that's what i was just about to say it's it's interesting because i guess ben like yours is like logistically you know it's like that's great i can just chuck some money at this and it'll turn off in my door in this envelope and then chris yours is much is really instagram friendly
2: yeah i'm looking like, at an just ad- an adorable picture here of a hydra with um every head having little helmets on little ball <laughs> <with each head. laughs> i
4: think, <laughs> think know, that's my favorite one i was like I'm going to give it a little tiny helmet for every little... Yeah, adorable. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, like, because I guess, like, both of you started
0: from quite distinct positions of, you know, like, start, you started from a very sort of visual and aesthetic position, Chris, and Ben, you started from that, like, these, like it needs to fit in this envelope, and it needs to be this micro game, and, like, so, do, you, do you find that makes it easier or harder? Like, what problems does that, having that starting point create for you i think chris you've you said a bit like the issue might be that you keep adding more stuff because because you started with this looks cool and you're adding more stuff because it's cool is Mm. that is that fair
4: yeah that's pretty fair (laughs) (laughs) and how Um, do you how do you
0: work around that because i guess it's like you know when i used to teach creative writing like one of the things you were always say you'd always have to say to people is like kill the things you love you know people would write these wonderful pieces of writing and you'd be like this is great but you could lose like fifty thousand words from this and it would actually sort of tighten up. But it's such a hard thing to do.
4: Yeah. Um one of the things actually that's that's helped. So one of the reasons I have done this sort of like slightly bigger than I can chew game is because the last two games which I've designed for competitions, they did quite well. They're they're quite little, they're quite self-contained. Um and I'm I'm rather than go for Kickstarter myself, I'm I'm looking to approach publishers with them. And that's that's going okay. Nothing to announce on that front, but you know, there's some interest and that's quite nice. But for this one partly again because of lockdown and wanting to have a a big project for myself and partly because i wanted to try to build something of the scope of the kind of game that i like to play and i like a game that's got lots of different types of card and lots of different types of deck so it kind of came um partly from from that but um building it from the the theme and then finding mechanics that fit it can be problematic if you um I've not so much with this game but with other games I've kind of come up with a central idea and then thought oh could it be this mechanic or this mechanic nothing quite fits and then I think well I'm just going to abandon this for a while because none of the game mechanics that I'm kind of thinking to use for it really work for me so I think if you start with a well, if you start from looking at a, an existing game, say, and then thinking about how you can adapt it or change it until it's something completely unrecognisable, that probably has a, a, a better success rate. Or starting from one central game mechanic and then adding things or taking things away, which is what I tried with The Island of Treacherous Treasure, Um, the the central mechanic in that was meant to be a, a bidding mechanic. Um, So I I just read a book about game theory and I was quite taken with the idea of Dutch flower auctions, where they start the bid high and they come down and someone will jump in and that's it. It's sold at that price. Hmm. And so it's very quick. Um And I thought, that's cool. I'm going to have this in a game. It's not in the final game. It was for ages. <laughs> and then eventually I thought I added more, I stuff away. This bidding mechanic doesn't fit and it slows things down. So it's getting axed. But by that point, the game had taken on its own kind of life around it. So it's interesting. It's quite organic, I think for me. And then obviously through, Play it, playing it myself and then play testing it with other people, I chop and change things and I think that will be the case with this one. Although it's going to be a bit more of a, a bit more of an odyssey, if you will, to actually get there.
0: And it's interesting with you, the way you just thinking about this because I've, I've played both of you at, at different games and and the way you both talked about your games actually makes me think a little bit about you as gamers <laughs> as well. Because I think Chris, what you've said is obviously like we know each other through Epic uh, mainly. But But what you said about it with the sort of the art and the concept and the design is very much how I remember you approaching Epic when you started playing it. And you had this all these little sort of grot tanks and the Mm. big rock. And, you know, it was a very aesthetically driven army that you painted up. And then I remember playing your guild ball and you just being you're a very efficient player you know this you're you're very you're very focused and it's like you're sort of very good on your win conditions and and often mm-hmm. would do stuff that was extraneous to that so do, do you guys feel like that that stuff is translated into how you do games or do you is that just the me uh what correlation <laughs> doesn't equal causation i guess
4: I, I certainly think so i think um i need to have that central sense of theme to, to a game even that I'm playing or I find I lose interest I was playing Lords of Waterdeep once with somebody and I said oh what are the little white cubes are they wizards or are they warriors again or something I can't quite remember what the cubes were and he was like oh it doesn't actually matter because you just look at the white cube on the card and that matches the white cube so it doesn't matter what they're called mm-hmm. and I was like "But I really want to do <laughs> otherwise it's pointless." <laughs>
3: No, no, that's true, actually, because I think when I get into, like, a game like Guild Ball, actually, I'm not as, although the theme's cool, I realized, actually, I was definitely looking at, like, the mechanics and what I could do with it, and, yeah, so I suppose, I suppose coming at it from a more mechanics-first uh, uh, angle is 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 probably natural. Um, that said, because the, the first game I was designing, that, that the Pirates game, was thematic uh, first, and I actually found it much easier once that sort of based mechanical framework was in place to then sort of flesh it out more once the theme is in place like i was adding you know extra sort of like guns to the game and things i'm like okay how would a flamethrower be represented in this game how would like a throwing star be represented And it was quite easy to then say oh this is what it would look within that mechanical framework um so having the theme because i've got a load of mechanics ideas at the moment with no theme and it's quite hard to take them any further um so it definitely helps having like whether you go theme first or mechanics I think you need to kind of like flip-flop between the two a little bit and go okay now I'm going to like push these mechanics a little bit more then see how that drives the theme a little bit more um, M- Micro Dojo was definitely a mechanics first um, and I think being a small game the game like I mentioned can be all about the mechanics and then the theme is sort of built around that. Um, the-, the working title for it was just Dojo and it was all around this sort of the the, the movement and like the sparring in sort of that space and then um, from there then the-, the rest of the theme sort of built around it but then having had that theme in place um, when I came up with some ideas for the advanced game mode which was um, well, you know, they started off as sort of general abilities and moved into an advanced game. But they were basically how could the characters interact differently. And, um, uh, you know, the, the sumo character has an ability to push other meeples out of the way. Or the ninja has the ability to swap places with one of the other meeples. So then I, I don't know if I would have come up with that idea necessarily without having thought, like, what would a sumo do? You know, what would a ninja do that's, you know, kind of cool? So, yeah, the theme informing the mechanics, I think, helps helps flesh it out. Um, and then starting with those mechanics, um, sort of having that framework in place makes it much easier. I mean, to looking at the rules here, it seems it. very tight, like making a game this small and,
2: and you know, but also having options available to it. You know, I think it can be easy to make a game too big, right? So I think having those limitations is quite quite, quite tricky. Um, yeah. Options in yeah, there. And knowing and then, but how much space, space I had on part. the
3: punch board helped. So well, knowing, okay, you know what, it would be cool to produce like 25 different buildings that do all these different yeah. things, but in the end I settled on 12 and ended up cutting four of them because I'm like, this is what's going to fit on uh the punch board this is this is what's actually going to work um i used sort of i used onitama as a as an inspiration for it in terms of not necessarily the the theme and things but the feel of the game like it's so simple someone explained it to me over drinks (laughs) it took less than a minute to explain and i've never forgotten the rules because it is whenever anyone says their game is you know easy to learn and hard to master it's a bit of a cliche but i always think of onitama because it's you explain it in 30 seconds and but it's got a lot of depth of play so that's that's what i was going for is something um with you know simple to learn depth of play type sort of type feel in terms of movement and mechanics as in like you know you're sort of in that push and pull with your opponent um and then basically squeeze as much game as possible into a tiny space
0: what did you because obviously it's an interesting thing doing these as like solo projects and then also really particularly at this time they are you know almost more solo because there's times where you can't really go anywhere and obviously usually like if it's done by like a a company there'll be you know Mm. it might be a lead designer but there'll be people that they'll bounce off how did how did you find doing this by yourself and like you know were we was there someone you were constantly ringing to bounce stuff off or did you just sort of dojo it
3: in your own head and then <laughs> yeah of, uh, run it i through? spent probably a, a week thinking about the game and thinking about all the problems it could have like oh you know what if one corner of the board is too good and everyone just goes back and forth between two spaces how could i stop that or what if um you know it turns out that the game is solvable that was probably one of my biggest worries with it so i spent about a week solving all those problems, or not solving those problems in my head. And then after a week, I was like, you know what? I need to make it. Um, and I sat down. I think I sat down for about 10 hours and just basically smashed out a prototype, like um, put the artwork, the icons in place, like very basic stuff. But just like, OK, it's now a game. Uh, and then gave it a play. Um, and <laughs> I don't want to say I got lucky, but the the board layout hasn't changed since that very first really? prototype. Oh, like wow. I, I tried oh, a few variations. Yeah, and some variations were like, okay, these are fine, but not enough to, you know, they might be better, they might be worse, but not by enough to to be worth changing it. So it just kind of stuck from there. Um, But I think that's because I built a fairly, you know, like Chris, you mentioned with your spreadsheet, I hadn't quite spreadsheeted it because there were some um, tweaks to do. But in terms of like the action economy, it's fairly straightforward in that, you know, I can average roughly what a turn is worth in terms of the resources you're getting all the points you're getting. Um, so it means that there's nothing that's either like too crazy or, or too useless. There's, you know, some decisions you're making and they're always pushing you towards that sort of end game. Uh, so yes, that, that that wasn't too much of a problem um, from that perspective. So there was some tweaking, some things got cut, a few things got added, there were some changes, but uh, the, the board itself um, hasn't fundamentally changed and and the basic idea behind it is the corner spaces are sort of arguably the weaker ones the middle spaces are a little bit stronger and then the central one is the strongest so because you've got four meeples to move on a three by three grid there's a sort of an ebb and flow of moving to stronger spaces and then as those get covered you have to move back to weaker ones so there's a bit of a a flow to the game in that way so i think that helps solve that problem that i was worried about so forces Um, engagement yeah, oh, I didn't really answer your question though, Steve. Sorry, because you were saying what was it like to um to develop it on my own, and uh, I actually found I just did a ton of a ton of reading, a ton of listening to you know design podcasts and things to to learn about it. Um, but if you look at the thank you list on the the Kickstarter page, there's a list of probably like thirty or forty people, maybe that have all got thank yous. You know, from you know from the artist to friends that have helped out to people that have offered advice. Um. Other people that have said, hey, you know, I really like the game and I want to translate the rule book for you into my native language. Um, there's people that have helped. I-, I didn't even name, like, all the playtesters. I think it had about 50 or 60 playtests um, before commissioning the artwork. And then I- I've probably played it over 80 times now. And, um, you know, listing people that have helped out with, um, you know, my family that's going to help out with their shipping. There's, there's a huge long list of, um, of thank yous on the Kickstarter page. And I actually posted that to the... Um, board game design lab Facebook group saying this is what it looks like to design a game completely on your own. <laughs> like it's, it's basically impossible to do it on your own, but you have yeah, so many yeah, yeah, people yeah. offering to help out, to get involved, to like give their ideas or give their suggestions. It's um yeah, it, it's, I don't think it's possible to literally make a game in isolation on your own
0: what's well, sort of interesting is that analogy of a novel again i was listening to something on the london review of books podcast and they were talking about how you know you, novels always have this like here is the author that wrote the novel and you're like yeah. and then there's the editor the proofreader the you know the partner that's read it multiple times the artwork the like the book binders the production all of the these things are always sort of collaborative in some way aren't they and and, and chris is that the same did you find that the same for you and like obviously yeah the
4: you know you, you can't make a game on your own without lots and lots of other people um and I, so at the moment my games have involved fewer people i think than ben's but they're probably at a much earlier stage in terms of their full production um there are sort of not not tiers of people exactly but there's there's people that i like basically so my sister i send almost like everything to and i'm like what do you think of this is this good is this bad and um just to like have somebody say something about it, and sometimes she says, "Oh, that, that's, that's fine," and that's that's kind of it. But sometimes she gives you know specific feedback, and she's not a game designer particularly herself. Um, so it's just to have someone to speak to about it is is quite useful. And I have other uh, friends, one in particular who is also a, a game designer, who um, I tend to play, t- play test things with first and run things past, um, and in a similar sort of like almost everything just run it past him and it might be that he says no I don't like that idea and I say you seeing you don't like it has made me realise that I do so it's staying and then down it. the line playtesting with lots of different people is is absolutely vital um, there'll be something that somebody says after lots of playtests that you just think oh wow that, that means this whole section is ambiguous in a way that i had not considered before because you tried to play a card under a card rather than over a card and no one's tried to do that before but there's nothing that says you can't and it breaks the game so it's I, those I,
0: play are always are definitely from from both you know doing all the epic stuff and now the guild ball community project stuff the playtesters, you know so chris the one you'll know is from, from epic is dan mm. dan wilson like you know the, these people that you can just give something to but can you just break this like as, mm-hmm. break it as much as possible like you know and and the things they see in it are just like you would just never have thought of like in t- you know in, in all your days so it's a really interesting like yeah. that sort of external perspective and mm-hmm. and and you both sound like both you guys sound like very i think you're both naturally quite laid back and you sound very sort of like fine about people sort of challenging what you've done and your baby but obviously that must be quite tricky when you're doing so much of it by yourself if you then give it to someone they're like did you see this you're like oh like how do you (laughs) You know what's funny though
3: is when um let's say you're giving the game to someone and i know they're they're going through the rule book and they do the stupidest thing you're like how could you think it works like that you know what what possessed you to to take this move or to do something like you know how did you come up with that but the person whose fault that is is mine because I wrote the rules, I made the game, so if someone completely misinterprets them and does something stupid, well, that's because I haven't written the rules clearly enough. So I, mean, I are think we're re- realising like
2: that- Six languages, are there? You've got Spanish, Japanese, Greek, German, English and Dutch, right? Uh, uh, yes. So presumably, <laughs> writing them the languages is pretty hard because surely with languages you have different ambiguities here and uh, that's got to be hard in itself, right? Writing clear rules in different languages to make sure they all mean the same thing.
3: Yeah, and I think even the English rules, like, they had, like, three or four reviews. Um, they got to the point where I'm like, yes, they're clear. You know, loads of people have seen them. I got to the point where they were done. And then um, another uh, designer, Emily, had a look at them and gave me, like, five pages of notes on correcting them. And this is, by the way, this is this is for a, a one-page rule book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's so much to tighten. I, I'm i starting to think that we spent more time on the rule books than the actual game because it's uh, getting a good, clear rule book that's unambiguous. And like I say, this was two pages. And then then making it fit in the boxes for that one page that I had and making sure it's clear and making sure it, um, you know, the graphic design makes it obvious from how you would read it, that you're reading it in the right order, not just, you know, all of this symbology to help people to remember things. It's, um that came up recently as a topic but basically when you're writing the rules you're writing for like three different audiences because you're writing for the person that has never played or heard of the game and needs to learn how to play start to finish you're writing for the person that's kind of played before but needs a refresher and you're writing for the person that knows how to play but just needs to look up something as a reference so they're not reading in order so you're writing like a technical document because it needs to be technically accurate but it also needs to um, kind of impart that knowledge in a, I don't know, you'll know this more, Andrew, in the sort of learning environment, but in a way that people will be able to take on board that knowledge and remember it correctly and remember the right things. So it's got to be both technically accurate and it's got to kind of speak to people in the right way. So yeah, doing it in another language. um, All I can say is I've trusted my uh, translators who are, because they're board gamers who have volunteered, I'm trusting that they have understood the rules and have been able to get it across in their own language correctly.
0: It's super interesting, isn't it? Like that sort of, like the, and I think that is definitely a thing that's come much more strongly through into games in the last sort of decade is that like that real clarity of rules. Like even, so even like, you know, we've both been playing Infinity post like a Gilball and the the ambiguity of the rules and the volume of the rules in Infinity, like getting it out and being, and I know Infinity's known for that as well, but it was interesting being like, I've got to get a rule book out.
2: Like, and I haven't
0: had to get a rule book out. I mean, I love
2: the game, but I'm glad it's got a a wiki with hyperlinks in it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah Like the idea, I hadn't got a rulebook I don't think I'd ever got a rulebook out
2: playing Guild Ball In Guild Ball tournaments, you could have a tournament where no one had a rule book on them Yeah mm. Happened really all the time Whilst, you, you'd like, why tournament before that? And everyone had a big rulebook full of bookmarks and things
0: Yeah, in and Infinity, it's like every every sort of fourth act, every fourth move <laughs> You're like, well, this
2: So, you know, for the first time players, some epic Armageddon And the rulebook for that is not a good document <laughs> And
0: there's, there's a reason that the 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 community project for Epic has like a massive FAQ it's document.
2: it sort of you know, James to it, but it's written like a conversation. Yeah, it's it's quite. It's like, oh, the, the chap, chap can do this next. It's like bullet point or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a paragraph to say you like, can do this. It's, no, why do you think that's come about though? Why do you think that
0: that oh, change sure in sort of how rules are written has happened? Because was was it just that people got sick of GW type rules and just wanted like sort of efficiency because chris you play played quite a lot of gw games so you? you played necromondor yeah. as well like...
4: yeah um so i have a sort of pet theory about this which is that it's because of um the internet and people talking to each other on the internet and tournaments and sort of needing needing clarity in a way that before you would have conversations with people and i feel like 20 years ago maybe it's just because i was younger and more naive games were more sort of loose and that was fine Whereas with the like creation of the tournament scene and things like uh streaming as well, people just all seeing the game and how it's supposed to be played at the same time, there's been like this increased scrutiny on things being accurate. Yeah. So um I think that's got quite a lot to do with it. And and, you know, personally, I have this I do have a nostalgia for the old um Games Workshop <laughs> style of rules. Um and I, I think I find it quite quite a shame in a way although you know that's that's just the the way things are with with sort of tournament play for, for a lot of games and you know there are thematic games that don't suit tournament play that that i can play and be happy about um but i I, I suspect that's how it's come about
0: yeah that would make sense wouldn't it and i think you're you're, you're i remember one epic i can't remember if you were at it chris where where I think there were a load of metas that never really, you know, had not looked at the sort of international rule set for it because it was kind of harder to find and, and all just had these completely different interpretations of the old GW rules. Oh, really? hmm. you know, so everyone turned up and there was just sort of like, yeah, the house rules or this <laughs> uh, is a sort of interesting it's thing. It's weird and I, and things I just...
2: like, old rule books had things like in it, like um, the person can roll a four, a five or a six rather than a four plus. Written in a very sort of long-winded yeah. way. Everything written in a very really sort of long sort of descriptive way. Uh, rather than sort of shorter which is
0: definitely concise. kind of charming mm. like, it's, it's charming it's, but it, yeah, it takes yeah. a lot of words
2: to get way on to go um, but,
0: and is that something you guys would be looking would that be interesting to, to create again because i guess that is the thing the tournament what tournament games do mean is there's less of that like you take an afternoon or a day to play like a game of something and it and it maybe finishes but you're mostly playing for the theme of it you know and the flavor of it is that is that sort of like, how do you think those games work in the
4: modern environment? Is there still a place for them? Do you think? I I think less so. So certainly, um, I mean, you know, the Epic scene a lot better than I do. But but the sort of the competitive tournaments seem to be a lot more popular than any sort of themed themed events. So I think I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of appetite for it anymore. I think people can people do that on a smaller scale, and when they sort of play with with pals over a beer or something, mm. but um, it doesn't seem to quite suit the, the big event style. I don't quite know why it is. I wonder if it's just because with lots of people, with lots of different expectations of what thematic and fun means, you do have mm. to draw it in and, and mm. make it clear for it for it to actually work and not just be a, a complete circus that falls apart mm. and takes 27 hours rather than four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i think that's it because when you're when you're playing with friends you know you can just house rule
3: stuff and you know at the end of the day there's nothing at stake so you, you know you pack up and go home and well there's your friendship but other than that, <laughs> there's, not that much at st- <laughs> there's not that much at stake and you can figure it out as you go you know you're both kind of you're both committed to having a good time together essentially that's why well. you've got together to play a game whereas at a tournament it's particularly when you're sort of playing with strangers everyone's got their own sort of idea of you know what, what enjoyment they get out of yeah. it yeah yeah exactly so um, having a a tight rule set where there's no ambiguity means that you know, effectively you're all playing by the same rules. Yeah, because you know, their good time
2: could be either having a good fun with a good a good player, or their good time could be smashing someone's face in for six turns. And yeah. <laughs> <not losing laughs> yeah. One. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I guess
0: that's, that's, and that's kind of interesting design space, isn't it? It's like you're trying to codify fun. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> which is like a massively nerdy thing to do, isn't it? Really <laughs> <laughs> like to be like, how do,
3: how do we like, how do we create rules for fun? Like, well, Magic's done a good job of that because that's got a pretty tight rule set. But what they've done in the design space, uh, there's a really old article where they talk about the types of players they design for, and of course, you know, there's so many cards in Magic that not all of them are going to appeal to everyone. But they said, you know, this this card that is the um, you know the crazy sort of technical combo card that's going to appeal to this kind of player whereas uh, this kind of player just wants to play massive dragons and they don't care that actually this card is not very good no. or that it's overcosted. It you know they just want to play with the big dragon and they've had a good time if the dragon comes out it doesn't matter if they've lost the game um, you know so they've designed cards in that space for different people to then create their own fun within that framework so you know if you're the player that just goes i just want to summon big dragons and then you know, i don't care what else happens then you can do that or if you're the one that goes i want to meticulously craft this deck that's going to have combos in it so i can you know sit and do my thing and i'm like yes i pulled it off then that, then you can also have fun because you can these cards are available for you so um yeah i think magic well, i haven't played for a long time and i have no intention of for cash
2: prizes right i mean ultimately a high level of magic you actually can actually make a living out of it a little bit, can't yeah. you? So, I mean, I guess not, that's that's bear in mind. You're, you're on clear rules for Magic because people have a lot of money at stake.
3: Yeah, and, and funnily enough, it's got... I think what it does well in terms of rules... Well, we talked about Guild Ball as well, and I think Guild Ball did a good job of it, where um, there are, like, tricky interactions and things, but the basic framework is pretty solid. And once you have that basic framework, you sort of know how to extend it to, to sort of niche situations. I think... I can't remember how big it is, but someone told me that the rulebook for Magic is... It is available, and it's something crazy like 500 pages. But if you look at the number of people that have actually read that rulebook, and even, you know, judges might not have read that rulebook, you know, cover to cover, because everyone learned by playing with other people and learning the rules that way and learning the basics and then kind of extending that sort of rule framework to say, well, how does this apply in this situation? So there may be a 500-page rulebook for it, but it's never actually needed because the framework is good enough that, you know, if you understand about the stack and things like so that. So in some know. ways,
2: the rulebook is more like an FAQ in some ways.
3: Yeah, I think I've never seen it either. And so it sounds like you know,
2: it. Everyone's kind of learned the rules. It's just what
3: they threaten people with. Like you know, the, it's Beaten it's super it.
0: clean to play because if you get it wrong, you have to read a 500-page rulebook. <laughs> like if you over dispute something, like yeah, you find it. In are the you sure? The books out back and a yeah. judges Dragon it in in, on a big cart. Yeah, and it's only available in a paper copy. <laughs> there's, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. there's no control F option with this. It's got it's got that's why the judges around. are so hench. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so like, both you guys have designed sort of, you know, obviously card-based and deck-based games. And both of you guys, you know, have talked a bit about the fact that your, your backgrounds were, were in sort of many games. You know, you played, like, Table t- Do either of you have aspirations to design a miniatures
3: game? Is that something um, like to so do? I don't know that I will necessarily design a miniatures game from a... Um, because I think they work very well as a competitive... Like if we're not talking about miniatures as an add-on to there's a lot of games with miniatures that could be games without miniatures
1: yeah you know they can have
3: standees or tokens and um there's one game anachrony which um, i quite like because the base game comes with just tokens but you can get the nice mech models that just they don't do anything except make the game look nice but yeah i i enjoy playing it with the mechs but um i think we were talking about steamforged earlier and i think actually if you look at the the model like i've I've produced a micro game, which is a, a ton of work and a lot of playtesting and a lot of work, you know, to market it and to tell people about it. And even the absolute biggest fans, the people that are like, I love this game. It's amazing. I really want to get it day one. You know, I'm going to be back at number one. They're contributing five pounds Uh, they might get two copies because if they really like it so it it might be a tenner whereas if you've gone to the same amount of effort to get someone excited about your game and they're like i'm going to get the all-in 200 dollar pledge with the minis and everything you've got a lot more return like for your time and effort spent um and if you're doing all the work of designing a game and then going let's add 20 minis really the only extra effort is the the design and the sculpting um, compared to sort of all the balance, the playtesting, the, the marketing, the logistics, the manufacturing, all of those kind of things. So I think minis is a, let's say, we're talking strategy again, but quite a sensible, um, there's a good business case for doing minis for sure. And and there's a reason they're doing so well on Kickstarter.
4: It's interesting to hear you talk about them in those terms. I'd not really thought about that before as a sort of the effort going into making a miniature being a lot less proportionally than the effort going into the, so it's like more more money per effort. Yeah, I, uh, I
3: might be upsetting some sculptors out there because I don't know how much effort <laughs> it takes to,
4: to make a mini. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, the, so my interest in designing games kind of follows from the things I'm able to do, like come up with rules and and you know do you know minimalist but hopefully effective card art. Um, I can't design in 3D, and I would do particularly feel like developing it so for me it's just something I've not really considered but um, in the future if I was working with somebody else for example or, or a group of other people or if a publisher took on the design that I'd made um, I think I like how miniatures enhance a game um, mm-hmm. even just the, the tactility the sort of addition additional dimension the fact that you can kind of feel you know, like you're embodying the character or just kind of enjoy thinking about what the character would do in that themed space. And it's easier to do when you can actually see them in front of you. Um so all the things that I like about playing a game with miniatures in, um I I would love to be involved in a design that I was making, but um I don't think it's anything I'm intending to actively pursue anytime soon.
0: Yeah, because it's interesting how much
4: a game loses without them. Because I've played a bit of online Guild
0: Ball, like, and obviously Guild Ball is a game you could it doesn't re- actually need. It's a two-dimensional game; you don't actually need yeah, miniatures we, 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 to play
2: it. With tokens, wouldn't it as well? Yeah, you yeah. could
0: play it with tokens, and how yeah. much it loses without, as you're saying, Chris, that like tactility, and you know, and it's not like the most like lush tabletop game. Mm. You know, it is basically you know twelve miniatures and like three bits of terrain it's not like again not like infinity or 40k or something like that or, but it definitely loses a chunk of stuff by going to that sort of setup so it's and I, and obviously that's the designed with that intent in mind rather than not designed with that intent in mind but it's a sort of yeah it's interesting what the enhancement that it adds i suspect you're probably right ben as well about the sort of Like, yeah, I suspect it it obviously is quite a lot of work to make miniatures and produce miniatures and have the production line of them. But I guess if you've already got your sunk costs and the design and the rules and all of that sort of stuff, and you can add that in a relatively straightforward manner, yeah, that would make sense. It's it's a good add-on. It's a good, uh,
3: yeah. (laughs) Though I guess my suspicion Um,
0: would be that GW would, you know, the the exact opposite of that, isn't it? You know, like, famously, it's all, all the water goes into the miniatures design yeah. And the yeah. Are, yeah the rules the rules are yeah, obviously they do a, a decent job on them but they're rel- they're secondary to the design standard of the models
3: yeah, yeah. and I, you know you do get people kind of buying the models um because they like the models and you know people will buy the models paint them convert them that have never played the game or have no intention of playing the game so that really speaks to sort of how strong the the models are um i think games workshop and games like that are a little bit different because it's uh, to, to keep continuing producing models, you need to have a reason for people to keep buying them. And a good yeah. reason for people to keep buying them is to have a, we're going back to the tournament scene, but is to have a competitive scene around it and to have a you know community around it where you can go every week. You know, you're not just buying a, like a board game and then it goes on your shelf and then you get it out now and again. You need to be continually invested in it. So I think if your focus is on minis as a product rather than minis as an add-on to the game, um, You then need to have a, you need to consider, okay, is there going to be a competitive play scene around this? How are we going to build a community around it? And that is, that is very, very hard. Um, So that, that comes with, I think, producing a miniatures game rather than a game with miniatures, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. I
2: saw online um, this week, someone described Games Workshop as being a um, subscription service. (laughs) <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, yeah. actually.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. But I guess it's a utilization thing, isn't it? As well, like it's a cost to utilization. Like again, to go back to your your sort of strategy point, Ben. Like it's like if you're spending this much money on something, like yeah. you, you want like it's the utilization of that object. Like you know, if you're spending yeah. five pounds on your your card, your game on Microdojo, you play it a couple times, you really like it. You might break it out occasionally, but like if you realistically, if you only ever played it twice, you'd be like, yeah, it was pretty yeah. good. yeah Yeah, that was good fun played that twice remember that like whether as if you buy you know i don't know like adeptus titanicus like you're gonna have to get quite a lot of use out of that to be like that was 300 pounds well spent
3: (laughs) and it's funny actually because i'm looking i've got the monster hunter campaign in mind um at the moment and particularly thinking of the you know the video game ip and how that's reaching other like non-gamers or you know, video gamers. And I think, actually, it's almost like when you can buy the collector's edition of the video game that comes with, you know, the nice standee model yeah. or the nice uh, thing. It's almost like that where I think we might actually get a lot of people that are big fans of, say, Monster Hunter buying it so they can have the minis and not probably never playing the game or maybe not even really caring if it's a good game. Maybe they play it once with their friends, but they're probably buying it because they really, really love Monster Hunter. Oh, yeah. It's
0: like a Forbidden Planet kind of thing. It's the sort of stuff you get yeah. on the planet, you know, where you're like, I bought this bust of... I don't know who I like, can't. I think Psychopaths the other day. Boba Fett. It's always some Boba Fett thing. In yeah. the room, though, isn't it? Like, what a Boba Fett.
1: <laughs> like, what are you doing with
0: that? Don't know, but uh, I yeah. like Boba Fett. <laughs> yeah uh brilliant and um, should we uh, i think as we're sort of drawing to a close so we just quickly uh recap so ben micro dojo is
3: available on kickstarter it's on kickstarter now i, I don't know when the podcast goes out but at on we're so today. It, um you suddenly have another two weeks left before the time it comes out okay yes yeah, so it's been running for about a week now yeah, yeah. um funded in 13 minutes which i was pretty amazed by i think i just sat there stunned for a few minutes what do i do now (laughs) um yeah the campaign's (laughs) gonna be running for another couple of weeks um the game's complete at launch i've actually the first 500 copies have already been printed already so they're going out basically as soon as the payment's clear from kickstarter which is a couple of weeks after it closes they're going to be shipped out straight away the rest of them are going out a couple of months later so it's yeah it's done it's it's ready to go no no long wait um that's micro dojo
0: website or anything like that people can follow your company on there's a facebook
3: group for Microdojo, and the company is prometheus game labs um if you search Microdojo on kickstarter or on facebook or, or probably online um you, you should be able to find it uh, and chris any
0: any important things for you to cover
4: um well i don't have anything anything out there yet so um hopefully one day i'll i'll come back on and, and talk about that absolutely um, but uh, in the meantime, I, I do post about my uh, game design stuff and, and post art and, and mechanics and gameplay stuff on Instagram, and that's Christopher Brooks UK, all one word. And uh, yeah, come and come and follow me, and I'll follow you back if you're into game stuff as well.
0: We'll try and put a link in the show notes, and it is is as a lovely Instagram feed, so I, I recommend it even just for the pretty pictures. Um, and my other question to you on that is, like. Have you been sued by Ulysses Twenty Thirty Six
4: yet? Have they? I am still too small fry for that. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not
0: coming after you. Whichever anonymous Canadian TV channel it was that that. Uh Um, so, so listeners, we've actually lost Andrew. He's he's disappeared. He's he's made it try and look slick, um, but, uh, <laughs> but he's not here anymore. He he has he has Bairn issues. So I think what I'll do is I will say thank you very much to Andrew Jones, the host of this program, who's not here. Thank you. That's my Andrew impression. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to say thank you very much, Ben Downton. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. And thank you, Chris Brooks. Yeah, it was great. Thank you very much and now andrew is back just as we wrap up (laughs) we've all said goodbye andrew we've we've mocked you for disappearing for your chair so the listener can see behind the curtain is there anything you'd like to say before we finish um
2: yeah that that podcast ending was brought to brought to you by my nine-year-old daughter um obviously just desperate to get on the podcast um that's it um did a patreon plug yes we have a patreon uh at some point steve will actually produce some more content for it gilbert related because that's basically, basically he actually plays the game right now uh, <laughs> and there'll, there'll be some of that coming out when soon steve is that correct yes we'll do something yeah 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 for sure uh, engineer's
0: box. guild engineers how to guild. play engineer's guild in 30 minutes
2: yeah. yeah brilliant that's definitely gonna happen isn't it absolutely yeah yeah 100 <laughs> brilliant <laughs> thank you very much um